Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here with the fireside chat number. 260. 260. That's great. Oh, no. You got to see him for about 13 seconds. There's nothing I can do. Is Snoopy available? We should have a dog here. Oh, it's painful. We bribed him with little uh, yummies for dogs. and His mommy's not here right now. That's a big problem. All right, everybody. You'll have to find me interesting without Otto, which can be a challenge. Oh, my God, he's really going. See, here's the point. My wife is not here, so therefore Otto's mom is not here. So he is now going to the window to stare out until she comes. That's, that's love. And it's so interesting. Uh, I don't want to get sidetracked, but it's nevertheless, it always, everything makes me think. And that makes me think about people love their animals, which I totally get. They're, they're lovable. But a, a part of the reason is that they get, quote, unquote, unconditional love from the animal. And so some people prefer them to people because it's people don't give unconditional love. It's just the nature of, of the human being. And by the way, I'm not sure that it, it's a virtue. No matter how badly you're treated, you should still love someone. I don't agree with that. But anyway, uh, that's worthy of its own subject. Why people... Many, many, or increasing number of people are preferring animals to human beings. It's not a good development. Okay, anyway, welcome to the Fireside Chat. Dennis Prager here. I don't know if I even said my name, but I presume you know it. So here we go. New York Times has an article. Big, big uh, opinion piece by a psychologist and psychoanalyst named Jameson Webster. It's a woman. And she writes, the title of the piece is, Teenagers are telling us that something is wrong with America. Well, something is wrong with America. I agree with that. But it's not what's wrong with America in terms of its values and ideals, it's what's happening to America by those who don't appreciate it. That's, that's what's wrong. But that's not even the, the key point I want to make here. So I'm going to read to you a little bit from this article. Listening to my patient, so she had a, a teenage girl named B. Obviously, she's not giving her name, just calling her B. Listening to my patient, it was a question about an unpredictable future that seemed most salient in her suicidal ruminations. So apparently, obviously, her patient was thinking about suicide. This girl, I will call by her first initial B to protect her privacy, spoke passionately about, are you ready? So I want you to remember, this girl is ruminating about suicide. So... What is it that uh, has caused this? Was she molested? Was she beaten? Uh, has a, a, uh, a loved one died? Here is what is causing, according to the psychologist, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, 
to be a psychoanalyst, you have to be a psychiatrist first. So this, this person has an MD and a psychoanalytic degree and a PhD in psychology. Okay? All right. What is it that's causing B to ruminate about suicide? She spoke passionately about climate change, about racism, and inequality. That's, that, it's, it's almost, well, it's very odd. Well, it's not odd. It shows you the power of society to make people miserable over things it makes up. Now, why aren't I depressed, let alone suicidal, about climate change? Interesting question, right? Why aren't you? Or you? We don't want to drown with rising oceans. I'm not, I'm not being cute here. I mean, we don't deny that the climate is changing. It's that we don't share what we believe is hysteria. Because since 1990, at least, we've been warned that we have 12 years to survive. Al Gore said in 1990, the former vice president of the United States, was he vice president or was he, did he run for vice president? No, he was vice president, yes. And then he ran for president. And he said... We have 12 years, and then in, in 2002, again, we were told by environmentalists, 12 years. So that brings us to 2014. And again, 12 years. Every 12 years, we're told we have 12 years or it's too late. But nothing big has really happened. I'm sorry, nothing big has really happened. Life has gone on pretty much as it was before. The severity of hurricanes, despite Ian, has actually decreased in terms of the damage done in the last few years. Okay. There's something wrong with a culture that is rendering people depressed because of something that shouldn't depress them. What else? Oh, the racism and inequality. It's the least racist multi-ethnic country in the history of the world, and that's causing her suicidal thoughts. It's hard to believe. But it's, it's yet a, another creation of the progressive world that is depressing people and inequality. What's wrong with inequality? Seriously, I know, you, I know that this will be isolated for the, those who can't stand me to say, Prager says, what's wrong with inequality? As if they have an answer to it. What is wrong with inequality? There, there are many people... Certainly when I grew up, and certainly most of my adult life, vast numbers of people wealthier than me, it didn't mean a thing to me. Of course there's inequality. Some people have more luck. Some people have more talent. Some people work harder. Some people have more health, which is part of more luck. It's inevitable. The only way to make everyone equal is through violence like the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, which emphasized equality. America didn't emphasize equality. We were born equal, but, it, but, the res, but we never aimed for equality of result. That's what I mean by what's wrong with inequality. Shortstops make 50 times more than I do. That's not... I think I do more good for the world than most shortstops do. For those of you outside of the baseball world, in other countries, it's a baseball position. Okay? 
So what? I don't have any problem with the fact that baseball players make a lot more money than me. Life will always have inequality if there's freedom. The only way to end inequality is by ending freedom. Okay, what else is causing this patient suicidal thoughts? The mental health issues of her friends who were on this medication or that medication had eating disorders, attention disorders, self-harming behaviors, and depression. Every generation has kids who have troubles. But this is obviously unprecedented in American history. The number of depressed kids with eating disorders, attention disorders, self-harming behaviors, and so on. Why is that all happening? Is it because of climate change, inequality, and racism? No, not in the least. So maybe it's people are preoccupied with it and it's getting them depressed. Maybe there's something else going on here. And I'll tell you what I believe it is. And I've said this all of my life. When you tell people, American kids, for example, your country stinks, your founders were evil, and your future is existential death because of climate change, well, it's not hard to see why you might depress some kids. How many kids today who are in an an actively religious home are as depressed as kids in a secular home? Wouldn't you think that a psychologist, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst might ask that question? It never arises in this very long opinion piece in the New York Times. They never even ask the question. They're so secular, our professors, that they don't even think to ask the question. Hey, is it possible since every poll shows that people with a religious community are happier, live longer, and are healthier. Maybe that might be a possible answer. Even if you're an atheist, can't you be intellectually honest? But they don't. she doesn't even ask the question. I want to read to you another thing. Yes, the pandemic exacerbated a groundless feeling. No, the pandemic didn't. The lockdowns did. Sweden had no lockdowns. Their kids are doing fine. But the way adolescents investigate their world for its failings, really, is that what adolescents do? Investigate their world for their failings? Again, big religious secular difference. I grew up in a religious home, my case Jewish, and I went to a religious school. I didn't investigate society's failings. I investigated my failings. That's what you do in a religious place. What can I do to be a better person? How can I conquer the bad parts of my nature? But to her, being a secular leftist, all you do is blame society. This is all a blame society article. It's so, isn't that interesting? Adolescents investigate their world for its failings. No. Adolescents should be investigating themselves for their failings. And once they become wonderful people, maybe they can work on the great, uh, let's alleged failures of the country most people in the world would like to move to. Or put it this way, it's the country, the, the country that is most desired to move to. What happens when we realize the escalator, so crucial to the American dream, didn't go anywhere? and maybe never really worked, at least not for many. 
This is just leftist jargon in the middle of a, of a piece by a psychologist. First of all, the American dream is not built on an escalator. It's built on a staircase. Big difference. The escalator takes you up to the American dream. The staircase, you walk up. You make the effort to get to the American dream. There is no escalator in life. There are only staircases and ladders. <laughs> Everything about this is just wrong, is just wrong, is empty. B, that's her patient, the adolescent girl, wants to move to the countryside and raise dogs. Quote, beautiful, innocent, fluffy dogs, just like mine, unquote. She doesn't want to work or make money or have children or be with anyone really. Wow. Now what produced that? People like this doctor produced that. I don't remember an adolescent when I grew up. I don't remember a peer. I and mean, everybody had problems, family problems, health problems, you name it. Friendship problems, bullying. This has been universal. But I didn't know anyone who let's what it didn't want to work, didn't want to make money, didn't want to have children or be with anyone. But of course it's America's fault because and climate change. Finally, here, here's a real doozy for you. When B spoke about her gender identity, something suicidal broke through. This is not a trans. Her gender identity. She's a girl who identifies as a girl. What's, now you're thinking, so when she thought about being a girl, something suicidal broke through. You're a girl. Does, are you wondering what it is? Because... I'm a boy, so maybe I'm not getting it. Do you get it? No. Oh, I didn't think so. Okay. You ready? The pressures, contradictions, and vulnerability of being a girl felt too much. What are, the, what are, what are you talking about? What are, the, what are the pressures, contradictions, and vulnerability? Everybody has pressures, contradictions, and vulnerability. It's part of life. That's the point. It's part of life. Uh, generations have been raised to think life should be easy. And that's the root, a root of this whole problem. Life isn't easy. Life can be beautiful, but it isn't easy. It's not meant to be easy. It wasn't created to be easy. Death is easy, which is, I guess, why they think about suicide. I'm not done. It gets worse. She would double over in my office saying she had her period as if to demonstrate something unbearable about verging on womanhood. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll leave it at that. It, 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 it's preposterous. It's preposterous that this psychiatrist doesn't say, this is really, really pathologic that this girl feels this way. No, 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 we understand. Because womanhood is, is so challenging. Manhood is not challenging. Humanhood is not challenging. I said finally, I was wrong. Here's finally. Truth to be told, we all have these questions about how precarious life has to be in this country. 
if life in America is precarious, what is it in most of the world? We don't even have an adjective for it. Life in America is precarious? Whew. What, what, is, what is life like in Ghana? Togo, Benin, all countries I've been to. I, I've been to 130 countries, so I have an idea of what precarious life is about. And it ain't here. How to live with the hopelessness about the future that is emerging. Only because you're telling them it's hopeless. They're going to drop dead of climate change. Okay. This is what goes for, for intellectual in the New York Times. It's just typical of a New York Times opinion piece. It, it is convoluted. And it doesn't ask any deep questions. Okay. This, this is what you get at a typical psychologist. Every psychologist I've, I have admired and I've had on my radio show or known personally has said that two-thirds of their peers are incompetent. This is one of them. I'm sorry to say. Okay. Let's go to you folks. Okie smokey, take it away. Hi Dennis, my name is Heather. I live in California and I wanted to ask you for some career advice. So I'm in my early 20s and I graduated from college in the middle of the pandemic. And within six months after graduating, I managed to get a job at a nine to five at a company I really love with people I really love to work with. But as a teenager, my dream was always to um, work and travel abroad and live in another country as if I was a local there. So I wanted to ask you, could you just give some advice for a young professional in their early 20s who's maybe looking at their life, looking at their career trajectory and just wondering, am I using my early 20s in the wisest fashion? Or what do you think people in their early 20s should be doing aside from or in addition to getting married? Thank you so much, Dennis. I love that you added that. That was great. That means you listen to me. I mean, I don't say listen by obey. Listen, meaning you listen to what I say. So one moment. Okay. Oh, yes. I did it. <laughs> All right. So putting aside the issue of marriage, do exactly what you wanted to do. I remember when I was in my mid-20s and I uh, said to my parents, you know, because I, I traveled ever, since I was 20, I've been 20, since I was age 21 or 20, I have gone abroad every single year of my life, except 2020, when it was not possible to do so. I even went abroad in 2021. I wanted to badly, just like you do. I wanted, I didn't, I lived in England for a year. Other than that, it was travel. And I remember saying I was about 24 years old. And I said to my parents, I think this year I'm going to go to Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and Israel. My mother almost uh, fell off the bed. I remember they were both in their bedroom at night. <laughs> I was talking to them. I was visiting, actually. I already was living on my own. And my father looked at me and he said, Hey, Dennis, you're only young once. Have a great trip. And, and that was it. And I, and I went to Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and Israel. And that, that's exactly what I did. And it was It was terrific. So you should definitely do that. You, you don't need career advancement at 23 
or was that her age, 23, I think, or mid early 20s, whatever she said. Yeah. You don't need career advancement now. You need life advancement. Take in what you can at this time. It'll be tougher to do all of this later. If you do, in fact, and I pray that you do have a husband and children, it's going to be virtually impossible, not impossible, but very unlikely that you're going to live abroad for a year. You're making a home. You want roots, stability. It's, it's tougher. It's more expensive. Every, well, everything. So do it now. I, I don't understand this great rush. It's like I don't understand the rush to go to college. Take a year off before you go to college. I've advocated this all of my life to young people. Take a year off before you go to college. And travel. Or even better, be a waiter or waitress. That's, that's one of the best things you could ever do. You learn tolerance, patience, responsibility, get a great deal of exercise. You walk miles a day while doing it. You get to serve other people, even if you're not in the mood to. You learn how to deal with difficult people. It's a fantastic profession. But anyway, take a year off before college or take two years off. And in your case, I'm thrilled you're happy at work. I, unless you, you, God forbid, contract some disease or get hit by a drunk driver or something, you're going to live a long time. And I don't see the rush to, to get that career advancement right now. So live a full life. Okay, here we go. Do you hear Otto? Otto's a character. There we go. Otto lives for pleasure. But what animal doesn't live for pleasure now that I think of it? <laughs> All right. Susan in Kernersville, North Carolina. Hi, Mr. Prager. Hope all is well. Thank you. My question to you is, what would be the consequences of parting ways with a sibling? I have a younger sister, middle child, who is 30 years old. Okay, so I assume Susan's in her 30s. And is always playing the blame game, is ungrateful and very resentful. She gives our parents the silent treatment and claims years of trauma. There has been no trauma in her life to behave this way toward our parents. I believe we have been taught to not give up on family, but now that I have a daughter of my own with another one on the way, I cannot help but think it may be best to part ways as my sister does not set a good example. I would love to know your thoughts. Thank you very much and God bless. Well, I'm not a fan of parting ways with, with family. Um, I am a fan of protecting yourself from an, an ungrateful, miserable uh, sibling. I, and you should. But to part ways, meaning not, just not to talk to, it may, I can always imagine a scenario where it's necessary, but I would like you to be able to look back at your life and say, I made every effort to have some contact. You don't have to love her. So this is what people don't realize. You don't have to love your parents. You don't have to love your siblings. But they, especially parents, are owed a certain code of conduct, even if you don't love them. You don't love your sister. She's not worthy of your love, to be perfectly honest. I, I'm totally at peace with that. So, that, so that's what it is. 
And uh, I, I, I would not let it ruin your life. That I certainly, I don't even believe not only about siblings, but even about children. I don't think that miserable children should ruin parents' lives. I don't think anybody should hold your happiness hostage. That has always been my view, and I, I think I mentioned that in my book on happiness. And if I didn't, I should write part two. Maxine, 23, in France. Do you believe the white lies told to you to uh, young children, such as the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and Santa Claus, just to name a few, is a contributing factor to young people becoming atheists as they grow up? Also, would you prescribe to future or current parents to partake in this storytelling? Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you, Maxine. So, let me say this. Anyone who says they're an atheist because their parents said Santa Claus is real is lying to themselves. That is about as superficial a reason as I could think of. You don't think anybody, any being created the universe because your parents said Santa Claus is real? That's, that means you've never thought the issue of God through. That's all it means. So I, want, I, I dismiss that completely. Do you stop believing in dentists because your parents spoke about the tooth fairy? Just to take the other example. <laughs> I don't believe in dentistry. My parents lied about tooth fairies. What is wrong with Santa Claus, tooth fairies, and who's the other one? Easter Bunny. What could be wrong with that? Now, look, if your kid reaches a certain age and says, okay, mom, level with me. Is Santa Claus real? Okay, fine. You could say it's a beautiful idea. It makes for a richer experience when you're a kid. And if you mean by real, is there someone who comes in a sled from the North Pole down everybody's chimney? No. Okay, that's fine. But until then, why not have it? It's a beautiful, rich part of life. Every tradition in the world has this sort of thing. My grandchildren believe, I don't know, do they believe in the tooth fairy? No, they just like getting the money under their pillow. <laughs> I don't know if they believe in the tooth fairy. I have no problem saying there's a tooth fairy. It's my son's money anyway. But uh, it, it, it's so odd to me that people, people will tell the gigantic lie that men give birth to their children but they, they won't say there's a Santa Claus. You know how backwards things are? Upside down? Oh, of course. Men, men give birth. Oh, but there's no Santa Claus. How about we enjoy Santa Claus and only women give birth? That's, that's much closer to a, a, a healthier childhood for kids. Linda Minneapolis Minnesota, USA, you travel a lot, that's me, and seem happily married. How do you make your busy work life and married life work together well? How do you keep your wife happy? <laughs> I, I really am dying to have my wife on. She just won't come on, which is painful to me. Because if I told her she'd come on, first of all, if I could even persuade her, she wouldn't sleep for days beforehand, which is really a, a joke because she's so articulate. But it is what it is. So... By the way, let me take the last part first. How do I keep my wife happy? Well, I'm going to tell you something very interesting. 
My wife said to me one time, probably said it more than once, but I remember when she first said it, one of the things I really enjoy about you or even love about you, I don't know what verb she used, is that you're predictable, which sounds boring. I'm not boring, I promise. If I were, you wouldn't be watching this or listening to this. But what she meant is correct. The opposite of predictable in a relationship is eggshells. People you have to walk on eggshells with are not predictable. You don't know how they will react to any given thing, how they'll wake up on any given day. And so they're not predictable. It's not fun being married to somebody who is unpredictable. It's, a, it's an eggshell existence, and that takes a big toll on any relationship. I mean, that's not the only way, hopefully, I keep her happy, but I'm giving you a very prosaic example of something people don't think about. I treat her kindly. By the way, I don't find it particularly challenging to do, but I do. I tell her I love her regularly. Now, by the way, I'm no hero in this matter. I've been divorced. So I want to make that clear to everybody watching. I, I, I have learned through the good and the bad about marriage and about relationships, just, just so you'll understand. But yes, we have a very happy marriage. That, that is true. I don't know how you know that or why you say I seem to be happily married. Maybe it comes through, but I am. And I'm very lucky about that, that I finally did find somebody to, to be truly happy with. And it's not an easy thing to find the right person in that way. But I do consciously try to treat her beautifully. However, now I will give you a really, what we say in America, for those of you outside, again, a baseball analogy, a curveball. We don't make others happy. People make themselves happy. That's a very important rule of life. I don't look to my wife to make me happy. I work on my own happiness. Clearly, I am a happier man because I am married to this wonderful woman. But I was happy before I met this wonderful woman. And she was happy before she met this wonderful man, if I may say that about myself. Or even not wonderful man, but this man. It was part of what appealed to me about her was that she, she was a happy and stable, indeed predictable, individual. So we don't make others happy. We can make others happier, but nobody makes a, another person happy. You have to make you happy. Just says one other thing. How do you make your busy work life and married life work together? Well, whenever possible, we go together. I'm going to be speaking in Denmark in a few weeks at the parliament there. And though they're only paying for my airfare, it is an investment in my marriage to get the ticket for my wife so that she could be with me. In fact, I wouldn't even go there if, if, I, if she didn't come. I, I, uh, that I will admit, I, I did a lot of my travels alone, but right now I much prefer traveling with her. That's, so that's, that's how it's worked out. We, we try to be together as much as possible, including on the trips. Obviously, if I go like I just did to Houston for one day, I, it's silly to make her pack 
and, and uh, spend the money on another ticket and so on for one day in Houston. But if, if it's a few days anywhere, we try to go together. But that happiness thing is one worth, worth always remembering. You are responsible for making you happy. Nobody else is. Okay? Well, I wish I could take more questions. But I can next time. I'm Dennis Prager, and before I say goodbye, I just want to remind you that just now, the third volume of my five-volume commentary on the Bible has been published. This is where I get my wisdom from those five books in particular, the first five books of the Bible. This one is Deuteronomy, the most widely quoted book by the founders of the United States, more than any secular book or any religious book. I think it'll, it'll have a tremendously positive impact on your life. It's called The Rational Bible. It's, it's my third volume, Deuteronomy. Thank you. See you next time.